we got to the airport and my mother was arrested. The Revolutionary Party had discovered that a English teacher had been involved in the opposition. Welcome to My Way, a podcast that shares the stories of people who are doing life their way. Listen along as we explore what works, what doesn't, and the experience that happens no matter which path we choose. I'm your host, Sunny Collins. Thanks for listening. Well, hello there. Welcome to the new year and the second season of My Way. You know, I was reading some crazy statistics this week from a magazine called Fast Company. Did you know that there are over half a million active podcasts out there? So I consider it quite an accomplishment that I've captured your ears for this episode and maybe even episodes before this. For those of you just tuning in, I am an immigrant, just your typical quirky American living in a South African village nestled in the mountains. This village is called Grayton, and since I moved here six years ago, no wait, seven years ago, I've been consistently amazed at how many crazy and interesting stories lay hidden away in the nooks and crannies of people's lives. And I'm beginning this season with a woman affectionately referred to as the Bat Lady. The first time we met, I made a horrible first impression because I was a no-show for our first coffee date. She was openly irritated with me, I would say, and I thought to myself, oh man, I am not going to get along with her. But we talked through the mishap, rescheduled the coffee, and I think it's safe to say we both have a real admiration for one another, both personally and professionally. So without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Sandy Sowler. Okay, so um, I'm Sandy. I'm usually known um, by my professional name, which is Sandy Sowler, Dr. Sowler, but I'm also known by my married name of Sandy Westmacott. I count myself as a scientist, first and foremost. Specifically, I'm an ecologist, and in latter years, I've become an ecological trainer. I was born in 1949 in Blackpool in the county of Lancashire, in the United Kingdom. My first memory would have been when I was probably around about two years old and at that time I was living with my parents in what was then the Gold Coast, what is now Ghana, and my memory is of a car coming towards me at night with the lights on and driving, driving rain. I should say that Ghana is a country close to the equator, so thunderstorms occurred most days. Mm. So I would guess that that would have been associated with one of their major daily thunderstorms. I have very clear memories, early memories, and prominent memories of wildlife. I have always been interested in wildlife, something which my mother was passionate about. And she was always interested in horses. So some of my early memories are the first time I have met horses and then later on the first time that I saw wild creatures, Mm. particularly those in the countries that I was living in. 
Um, so that was in the days when I was living in Iraq, in Argentine, and latterly in South Africa. And what were you like as a kid? I was an only child, and I didn't really grow up with a father because my father undertook contracts, often of two or three year duration, abroad. And quite often, my mother and I were not with him. Mm. So my childhood was largely one of being with my mother with no father. But there were times when we went to live with him wherever he was working. He was an electrical engineer and he tended to work for oil companies. And he lived at a time when oil refineries were being started. So he was involved in the early commissioning of many oil refineries. Although when I got to the age of 13, I was sent away to boarding school. So I have memories of of the early days of being at boarding school. I think others would have described me as a tomboy. And I think that is probably true. Mm -hmm. I was always getting into scrapes. I'd always be climbing trees, (laughs) um, climbing over walls, doing anything that was active and to some extent slightly dangerous, which has probably been something um, that has continued right the way through my life until now. And did boarding school become like a a substitute for family? Yes, Yeah. yeah, very much so. And I, because I did not attend boarding school, I don't know, but it, it seems like kids who go to boarding school are sort of of a certain ilk. They have a certain kind of grit. Um, and independence. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I wouldn't diss boarding schools because I think they can be good for many people. Yeah. And I think my mother's view was I didn't have many friends where we lived, mm-hmm. and so this enabled me to mix in those kind of circles where I would have children of my own age to be with. So did you have any heroes or role models? The earliest one I can remember was probably Charles Darwin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, yes. I was from fairly early on passionate about riding. So one of my early heroines was Pat Smythe. Pat Smythe was probably the first ever successful woman show jumper in the UK. And I very much admired what she did because at that point, no other woman had ever got to that position of um, being so successful in the show ring. I was taken by my mother most years to an agricultural show, uh, a county agricultural show. And that county agricultural show always had a show jumping section. Mm -hmm. And I saw her at what was then the Lancashire County Show. Why don't we go back, um, talk to me about the different countries that you lived in as a child. My earliest memories, as I've mentioned to you, were in the country which was then the Gold Coast and what is now Ghana. My father worked for um, the Abosso Gold Mining Company, which Stuart Shearer, who... Um, also lived in Greaton until he died last May, also worked for them. I was taken out there when I was about perhaps just under two years old, and I was there for two almost two years. 
I haven't a great many memories of that period. I can remember taking a tortoise as a present to a children's birthday party. I can also remember a servant that my mother had called Cobbiner, who was a big black gentleman who was passionate about wildlife and who used to show me lots of interesting invertebrates, small things and snakes. And he uh, had worked for the gold mine, but he had been involved in a massive explosion underground, which had caused him health problems subsequently. And the company decided that they would continue to offer him work if he would like to work as a household servant. And that's how he came to us. Wow. So he is a strong memory. And I can remember that I was allowed to go out, but obviously snakes were a concern because we were sitting, our house was within the bush. Mm-hmm. After that, I went to live in Buenos Aires in the Argentine, as my father was commissioning then the Buenos Aires oil refinery. And my memories there were going to school, but everybody spoke Spanish, Argentinian Spanish. So I had a smatter, I had to learn a smattering of Spanish. But again, there was an element of freedom there, not the fear that one has today, mm-hmm. particularly in the UK, where everybody is terrified their children will be uh, abducted or mm. they'll be taken by paedophiles. So there was an element of, free, of freedom there. Um, my memories of that, because I was under five years old when I first went over there, there was an attempt made to abduct me, which I do remember. Um, we were in walking in the, my mother and I were walking in the streets in Buenos Aires, and um, I don't think I was holding her hand. I can't rem- quite remember now. Yeah. But this man grabbed me by the wrist and began to pull me away. And I can remember that there was a lot of shouting and a fight went on. And um, my mother managed to get hold of me and pull me back again. But apart from that incident, there appeared to me a a measure of freedom as a child there. I used to play out in the streets. I left Buenos Aires when I was seven, and at the age of nine was taken by my parents to live in Baghdad. We arrived in Baghdad in June 1958. By November, the beginning of November 1958, there had been a major uprising, a coup, a revolution, which my father was involved in. Um, And it was a very frightening period. And eventually my mother and I had to escape one of the last white British families to escape the country at that time. We managed to get out, but it was was quite scary. My my father, on the day of the revolution, where the revolutionaries, the Ba'ath Party, Ba'athists, had got hold of the then incipient royal family, shall Mm. we put put it that way, (laughs) and um, they had managed to get hold of the uncle who was looking after the young man who would have become the king, and um, they cut off his head. Um, and thereafter, all hell broke loose. And they invaded the, the royal summer palace, which sat between our house and where my father was at work again in an oil refinery. He was commissioning the Baghdad oil refinery. Mm. So he couldn't come back. And we became very worried. 
because of obviously everything that was going on with planes flying overhead, people shouting in the streets, um, certain levels of bloodshed. Yeah. He did eventually manage to get back home several days later. Um, my mother decided that she and I could no longer stay in Baghdad. It was too dangerous, particularly as many of the American families had been flown out by their companies. Mm. And um, my mother decided that we must get out. Yeah. And I can remember my father pleading with her for us not to leave because he could not go. He was mm-hmm. not allowed mm-hmm. to go. So eventually my mother arranged that we would fly out on the last plane to leave Baghdad at that time which was a KLM flight, a Dutch flight. My father was quite a keen cine photographer, and he used to have um, eight-millimeter eight, eight cine film. Yeah. And he'd asked my mother if she was leaving to take away with her a number of packs of film, where my father had quite innocently taken pictures of me swimming in the swimming pool, etc. And my mother, who was slightly portly, used to wear a corset. So as we were preparing to leave the house, she put the packs of 8mm film into her corset to hide them because she didn't want them to be confiscated. Considering we'd lived through a revolution, we could have had pictures of that revolution to take out of the country. I had also not been educated for quite a lot of years at this point. Okay. I basically couldn't read or write, even though I was then, by then, almost nine years, I was nine years old. So you were essentially unschooled? Pretty much, mm-hmm. pretty much. But my mother had taken with us a lot of books, ostensibly, for her to teach me, but she never did. So in our packing for the airport, we had school books, and my mother had films, concealed in her corset right we got to the airport and my mother was arrested the revolutionary party had discovered that a english teacher had been involved in the opposition and when they opened our luggage and found my books they thought that she was the english teacher so they took her away at the airport. And Do you I, remember this? Very clearly. Yeah. Before she was taken from me, she said that she wanted to speak to the captain of the outgoing KLM flight. And they gave her that permission. And I can remember her purse. It was black with red binding around the edges. And she gave the purse to the flight captain and said, if anything happens to me, Please get my daughter out of the country. And I can remember his words now. He said, this flight will not leave until you are on it, madam. All I could think of was all those film packs inside my mother's corset. But of course, they were Muslim. And I think there was no way they would have undressed her. She was gone for some time, and I cannot remember. I didn't have a watch on, so I don't know how long. But she returned said very little. We got on the flight and we left the country. We had to fly. The only destination that was available to us was Schiphol, Amsterdam. And so we flew into Amsterdam. Do you know what happened? 
with your mom when she was She never discussed it with me. She never told me. So I don't know. I think they asked her lots of questions. Right. I don't think anything else happened to her. And with the films, did she come back? No, she had the films on her and they never took them off her. Okay. So I still to this day have those films. Oh, wow. (laughs) So talk about the family that you have now. Um, I'm married to Jerry. He's my second husband, of which I've been married for 26 years. Prior to Jerry, I was married um, to Jeff Sowler, and we were married for 21 years. I have a son by my first husband, and he is my only child. His name is John. He is now 32 years old, living in the UK. He's an electronics engineer. Jerry has two children by his first marriage, a daughter and a son. His two children and my son Mm. all live within about... 30 minutes, less than 30 minutes of where we have a house in the UK. What was your first job? I was a tutorial research assistant, tutorial research student at the University of London, Royal Holloway College. Um, I began to do a master's and in order for me to do that master's, I was paid a sum of money every year providing that I gave tutorials several times during the term to enable me to do my my research. Right. My first full-time, full-paid job was as a secondary school teacher in Coventry in the UK. And I was then a biology teacher. It was a large comprehensive school that was run by nuns. And I suppose fairly typically of nuns, they had a fairly... Um, interestingly narrow approach to life. (laughs) I was a biology teacher, and I can remember that the nuns decided, because it was that stage in history, we're talking about the very early 70s, that children should be taught about sex, and that they would teach them about sex. It wouldn't be the biology teacher that uh, taught them about sex. It would be the the well-experienced nuns <laughs> and the very first time they delivered such a lesson I decided that I would as a young woman young married woman yeah hang around outside the door and listen <laughs> and I can remember one little upstart asking sister Margaret how many times people had sex And I thought, this is going to be interesting. (laughs) And there was a sort of slight pause. And then she said, oh, probably about 10 times a night. (laughs) So Um, I suppose to answer your question, uh, it could be quite funny mm -hmm, (laughs) at times. mm -hmm. And And the challenging part about it? It was a Roman Catholic comprehensive school and we had a large number of Irish immigrants that were fairly poor. I had a a number of incidents that were quite disturbing. I used to teach the first class science, the lowest class is science, and I can remember one child giving me a book which was kind of chewed and I said what did you do? Did you um, 
did you let your dog get at the book? It turned out that she was living, she was sleeping in a room with six other children and it was infested by mice and rats. And I didn't know that. We used to have parent-teacher meetings and the teachers would sit at a desk and then the parents could come and talk to you about their child. And there had been an incident in one of my classes where a young woman, a young girl, the age of probably about 14, um, had thrown something at me. And I'd had to take her to the nun, who was a head, the headmistress nun, uh, to be reprimanded. And at this parent-teacher meeting, I had been sent on a piece of paper a warning that her father was coming and he proposed to duff me up. So, um, I because mean, because somebody because I had sent his daughter to who the head who who she'd thrown something at me, and the head had given a warning that she would be made to leave the school if there was another incident. And he decided that it was my fault. I can remember going back that evening for the parent-teacher meeting, being very scared. And this guy did actually appear with a knife, but fortunately my fellow teachers on either side were prepared and they got hold of him and managed to disarm him. So, challenges, yes. Very so the much apple so. doesn't fall far from the tree. Probably not, <laughs> oh no. So talk about the work you've done in your life that has eventually led up to you coming to Grayton. Well, I should explain that after teaching in the UK for three years, my first husband and I emigrated to South Africa in 1974, which I suppose had a bearing on coming to Grayton eventually many, 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 many years later. Uh, My first husband worked for a company called Courtolds, big textile company in the UK. Um, he was a research chemist and he was offered the opportunity uh, to work in one of their sister, their subsidiary companies in South Africa that made pulp from eucalyptus and wattle trees, which was then exported from South Africa back to the UK for making things like rayon cloth. Oh, wow. And cellophane paper to wrap cigarette packets in. So in 74, we emigrated to what was then Natal, which is now KwaZulu-Natal. And we bought a house on the south coast in a place called Umkamas, which is uh, south of Durban. And the first job I got was as a teacher. I started by teaching in high schools one in Scotborough, one in Amanzimtoti, and one in Durban. But because I had begun a master's and gave it up in order to get married, I was very, very keen to return to research. And when my first husband had a substantial promotion, he basically said to me, if you want to consider applying to do research, then the time is probably right. So I approached the University of Natal, Peter Maritzburg, as it was then, and I began what turned into seven years of research for a PhD, in which I, during that time, um, lectured at the University in Durban, and I also worked part-time 
for the what was called then the Natal Parks Board. So all of that was formative and we were there for 10 years. My first husband at that point decided he wanted to return to the UK. Uh, I didn't particularly want to because my research was doing well. I'd then got my doctorate. I was getting all sorts of post-doctorate research opportunities. But I returned to the UK with him. Soon after that, I had my son in the UK and then my marriage failed. Divorced, met Jerry, and he had never experienced South Africa. And in the time I returned to the UK, I'd come back several times to see to stay, see and stay with friends. So when he and I got together, one of the first things I wanted to do was to introduce him to South Africa. I had retained an old friendship, and this was Professor John Hanks, who had been my PhD supervisor. And when we started to come back on holiday to South Africa, we met John Hanks on a number of occasions, and his wife Carol. On one occasion, he said, we've just moved to a place called Grayton. <laughs> he said, why don't you come and stay one night with us um, before you return to the UK? So we were basically on a two-week holiday. And about how many years ago was this? This was 2006. Okay. And so we decided, Jerry and I, that before flying back, we would drive over to this place that he said was fantastic called Grayton, and we would stay one night. And I can remember driving from the N2, and it was pouring with rain, so we could see no mountains, <laughs> nothing. And it just seemed like a grim cold, being September, grey, damp day. The next morning the sun came out, and we had had a fairly red wine fueled night before, <laughs> as you can imagine. And rather unwisely, I had promised John that I would be prepared to give him an interview that morning. And he had said that the interview would be at six o'clock in the morning. Oh, my. So I can remember going to bed thinking, I'm going to wake up with a hangover. This is ridiculous. <laughs> I managed to have some sleep and I managed to give the interview at six o'clock. And after breakfast, John said, I must take you on a tour of Grayton. Now the sun had come out saw the mountains, saw the nature reserve, and he simply looked at me, having known me by then since 1977, and this was 2006, he says, I think you should buy a place here, hmm. and promptly took us round the estate agents. <laughs> so he left us at one of the estate agents, and um, Jerry and I looked at each other and said, well, if we did buy here, what kind of place would we go for? And the house that we currently have is the house that we bought, and it, it did fit the bill. We wanted something small without a swimming pool, with a mature garden, mm. and that's what we have. And and so you are what is called a, a swallow. I suppose being a biologist, I would say <laughs> no. What would you call yourself as a biologist and a resident, part-time resident of this town? I itinerant. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Swallows leave the UK in around about late August, early September, and they stay in South Africa until the South African autumn and come back to the UK in about April time. Mm -hmm. um, that is not our pattern. So uh -huh. <laughs> We have to come up with a different name for you. 
Mm-hmm. So not technically a, a swallow, but somebody with a house who comes and goes. Thanks for joining me for the first half of my conversation with Dr. Sandy Sowler. Join us next time as she talks about her relationship with Chiroptera and that time she was a search and recovery diver for the South African Police Service. If you haven't yet subscribed to My Way, please do so. Follow Podcast Cowgirl on Facebook and Instagram. And even better, take a minute to rate the podcast and let me know what you think. If you have any ideas for folks I should interview, please let me know at podcastcowgirl at gmail.com or message me on Facebook. Thanks for listening. See you next time.